You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. We're finishing up a series today that we've called Seven Letters. It deals with the uh, seven messages that Jesus sent to seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, what happened, Jesus appeared to uh, John on the Isle of Patmos and uh, told him to take down these messages for these seven churches, and then a messenger was sent out to deliver the letters. Uh, some of the letters have been uh, really positive letters. Some were a little bit mixed. Some were not, you know, that good of a letter to receive from Jesus. Uh, last week, we looked at a pretty good letter because it was a love letter that he wrote to the church of Philadelphia. Today, though, Jesus writes kind of a different kind of letter. I don't know it's the kind of letter that we would necessarily enjoy receiving. Hey, have you ever gotten a letter from someone, and in the letter, they more or less tell you, you make me so sick, I want to throw up. You ever got that kind of letter? Because honestly, that's pretty much what Jesus tells the church of Laodicea. He, he writes a letter to them, and he identifies several issues that's taking place within that church that we're going to look at. And he tells them that he more or less wants to spit them out or spew them out of his mouth. He's writing to the church of Laodicea. It was located about 45 miles from Philadelphia, the last church that we looked at. The name Laodicea actually means this, the rule of the people, the rule of the people. Next slide, please, man. The rule of the people. Um, I'm getting him out of order. It's my fault. Let's look at what he says in the letter here. Jesus writes to this group of believers, and he says to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. And that was their estimation of themselves, but Jesus looks at this church and he says, on the other hand, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like I said, Laodicea means this. It means the rule of the people. Some people think this 
church gives a picture based upon that name of a church that is more concerned about being ruled by democracy than they are concerned about being ruled by spiritual leaders of the Word of God. In other words, it might be this scenario. It was a church that was more concerned what their bylaws said than what the Bible says. And you see, as long as those two coincide, there's not an issue. But if a church thinks more of their bylaws or their votes that they have than they think of the Word of God, that's a problem. See, here's why I stand on things like that. Irregardless of what a church might vote into being, if it is contrary to God's Word, God's Word is always right and the vote's always wrong. If the bylaws of a church go against the Word of God, then the bylaws are wrong, and the Bible's always right. And yet that's a picture here given of a church that maybe is not too concerned about spiritual leadership or what the Bible has to say. Let me give you a little bit of background to the city where this church was located because it's really important as we go into the message because as with the way Jesus talked to these other churches, he kind of looks at the town, the city that they were in, and he uses some specific things about that city to communicate his message to them. So here's some information about Laodicea and the city there that you need to be aware of. It had very poor water. And because the water there was not very good at all, they would use an aqueduct to bring water in from Heropolis, which had, uh, was renowned for having very hot springs. And then there's another town close by, Colossia, that was renowned for having very cold, pure water. The problem is, by the time it reached Laodicea in the aqueduct, guess what? It was lukewarm. It no longer was hot, or it was no longer cold. It was just lukewarm. And Jesus brings that as an issue against them and tells them that they're lukewarm. We'll talk about that in in detail in a moment. Laodicea was also a city that was very wealthy. They had a lot of banks and financial systems in place. They were probably the most wealthy city of all these seven churches. And by virtue of that, the church at Laodicea probably was more well-off to do than all the other churches that Jesus sends these messages to. So it's like they thought, we're pretty self-sufficient. We don't need anyone's help. Matter of fact, the earthquake that we've talked about already in this series, the earthquake that almost destroyed Sardis, and the earthquake that almost destroyed Philadelphia, also affected Laodicea in, uh, in A.D. 17. The other two towns received help from Rome to rebuild. Laodicea said, no, we don't need your help. We've got plenty of money ourselves. So they had the attitude of being self-sufficient of thinking they didn't need help from anybody. Jesus will have an issue with that with them in just a moment. They were known also for this really fine, glossy, black wool fabric that was manufactured in the town. And people sought after it from all around. It was just considered really, really fine fabric. had a sheen to it and, like I said, made of wool. And people really looked for that and tried to buy it. So here's a city that manufactured that. So just maybe they thought, we're well-dressed. And Jesus is going to look at them and say, no, you're not. You're naked spiritually. 
And also Laodicea was well known for making an eye salve. They, they produced a lot of medical products in, in the city, and they were renowned for this eye salve that people could buy. And supposedly by putting it on your eyes, it could help you see better. So just maybe the church at Laodicea thought, man, we can see really good because of our eye salve that we can buy. But Jesus looked at this church, and he says, you're blind. So all those things are just some background information that we're going to bring into the message and that Jesus uses to speak to these believers at Laodicea. He writes to the pastor there, to the angel or the messenger of the church at Laodicea, and Jesus tells this about himself as he talks to them. He says, I am the one that's writing to you. I am true. I'm the amen. By that phrase, amen, in the Old Testament, the word amen was actually used as a title for God. So it's like Jesus saying, I'm God. I'm the one that's writing to you. Writing to the messenger or the pastor of the church in Laodicea. He says, these are the words of the amen, referring to himself as being God in the flesh. He said, by the way, I'm the faithful and the true witness. So what Jesus is about to say to the church of Laodicea is not debatable because it's God speaking to them, and he's a true and faithful witness. And the word witness actually means martyr. We get our English word martyr from it. By the way, I don't know if you've thought of this in this way or not, Jesus is the ultimate martyr. Because he's the one that died on the cross for our sins, that through faith in him and him paying for our sins on the cross, we can have everlasting life. He's the ultimate martyr. And then he says he's the ruler of God's creation. Now, some translations say the beginning of God's creation, but that does not mean Jesus is not saying, hey, I had my beginning in Bethlehem or anything like that, or I was created sometime at the beginning of creation. The word that's translated beginning or ruler in the NIV literally means the source. And when we read in the Bible, we find out Jesus is God's agent of creation. Jesus spoke creation into existence. Jesus is the creator himself. So Jesus writes with this authority to a church in Laodicea. And we're going to look at two main things this morning. First of all, Jesus cites about four concerns that he has with a church in Laodicea. And then Jesus is going to communicate three avenues of change. In other words, Jesus is saying, here's four big things that you're getting wrong, and I'm going to tell you how to fix them. And the concerns that Jesus has here for the church in Laodicea, I, I kind of want to argue is not just something that Laodicea need to be concerned about. We need to be concerned about it. Because what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea very much applies to the church of this modern day. So these four concerns that Jesus is about to voice are things that we need to be concerned about as individuals and as a church body. We need to be concerned about these Areas of concern that Jesus is going to talk about. First of all, Jesus tells them this. Jesus tells them that they are lacking in their vigor or their energy or their passion for Him. He says, I know your deeds. That, that phrase really means Jesus is saying, I, I literally see. I know everything that you're doing. And He's saying, your deeds communicate to me that there's some issues. He says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold or hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. In their estimation, they might have thought, 
we're an important church. We've got a lot of wealth, a lot of money. Things are going well. It doesn't appear that they were being persecuted like Smyrna and some of the other churches. So they might have thought they had a lot going on. But Jesus looks at them and he tells them, you need to understand something. There's some issues that you have. You're not as passionate as you need to be. You're not as spiritually on fire as you need to be for me. He sees their deeds. He knows all of their deeds. And he says, your deeds are communicating this to me. Jesus said, by what you're doing, I can tell you're lukewarm. Now, lukewarm is this, guys. Of course, it's neither hot or it's neither cold. That's what Jesus is saying. You can feel heat, you can feel the cold, but lukewarm is almost non-existent. It almost lulls you to sleep. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying to this body of believers. He's saying that I'm looking at what you're doing, and what you're doing tells me you're not really on fire for me. And he said, I wish you'd be one or the other. The Bible speaks of about three degrees of spiritual temperature when it comes to our hearts. The first one is this. We need to have a heart that's on fire for God. You remember the disciples that were walking by the way and Jesus appears to them after having been crucified? And Jesus talks to them and they ask each other after they have that experience with Jesus, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Guys, that ought to be our goal. Our hearts ought to be on fire because of what Jesus has done for us. Because Jesus died for us and Jesus speaks to us through his word, we ought to have a passion for him and our hearts be on fire for him. Another level of spiritual temperature is this. It's a cold heart. In Matthew 24, the Bible says, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Guess what? We're there. In our culture, in our society that we live in, because of the increase of wickedness in the world, the love of many people are growing cold toward Jesus. And then the third one is a lukewarm heart that Jesus is talking about here in this passage of Scripture. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I understand upstairs in a few minutes, we're going to be having our eighth anniversary celebration. I understand there are people that have gone to the trouble of fixing some really wonderful barbecue chicken, some baked beans, I think some slaw, you know, some desserts to go with it, everything like that. So you might be set for that right now, and you're thinking, yeah, let's hurry up and get up there. And you might not like the word I'm about to mention to you. The word spit or spew literally means to vomit. That's what Jesus is saying. Uh, Not to a lost world. He sent it to a group of believers. He said, because you're not hot or cold either one, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Now understand, that's not a good terminology. And some of you might have had your appetite affected right now. Well, you see, that's really a trick. I will eat your chicken for you, okay? You can't eat it, bring it to my table, I'll take care of it. But that's what Jesus is telling this church. He's saying, because you're not hot or cold either one, I'm about ready to vomit you out of my mouth. He's using the water of Laodicea as an illustration. Like I said, they had very poor water by the time they brought the hot water in from one of the towns. Guess what? It wasn't hot anymore. It was lukewarm. By the time the cold water got in from Colossia, guess what? It wasn't cold anymore. It was lukewarm. And lukewarm, when you take a drink of something lukewarm, especially when you anticipated it being hot or you anticipated it being cold, it about makes you want to throw up, doesn't it? 
You ever had it happen to you? It, it happens to me along these lines. Becky always wants to wash her hands in warm or hot water. And if we're getting ready to go somewhere kind of at the same time, and she's just washed her hands or whatever, and I'm there brushing my, my teeth trying to get ready to go, I don't think to look and see where Becky had the faucet set. You see, it's not two faucets on our sink. It's one of these that you pop up and you turn one way or the other. So I just pop it up, fill my cup up, turn it up into my mouth to rinse out where I brush my teeth. And sometimes I get this nasty, warm water in my mouth, and it makes me want to throw up. And she didn't intend to do it. That's just the way it happens. You probably have something similar to happen. You thought it would be cold, and it's not cold, and it kind of is sickening to you. Or the other side of it is maybe like you're drinking coffee, because this happens to me. I'll get some coffee in the morning. I'll go to the computer. I'll be studying and things like that. In my mind, two minutes have passed. Instead, 30 minutes have passed. And when I take the coffee and I turn it up to my mouth, it is lukewarm, and it makes me want to spit it out of my mouth because it's not hot. And I think that's the issue that Jesus is getting at here. He wants us to be cold, which is vigorating, or hot, which is therapeutic, one way or the other. He, he, you can feel heat and you can feel the cold. And the problem with the church at Laodicea is they weren't feeling anything. You know, they, they were just lukewarm. They were satisfied. They were self-sufficient in where they were in that point in time. And they just weren't feeling anything. I mean, just a couple of quick word studies. Hot literally means boiling. I mean, really hot. And cold means chilly, talking about really being cold. But instead, Jesus said that they were just lukewarm, just kind of tipped and, you know, not something you would enjoy. That's why a waitress, when you're at a restaurant, keeps filling up. If you're drinking coffee, they'll bring you hot coffee so the drink will stay good. If you're drinking iced tea, they'll bring you, you know, more tea, more ice, whatever you need, in order that it will stay enjoyable for you. That's what's going on, to keep it to where we enjoy drinking it. And here's the thing with that, guys. As believers, we need to be positioned in a way spiritually that we can enjoy each other, that Jesus can enjoy us, but also that the world can be impacted by us. The world ought to feel passion for us or some invigoration from us one way or the other. Jesus doesn't want us just being lukewarm. I was studying across some things about thermodynamics, and that probably you're thinking, well, why in the world would a preacher be studying thermodynamics this week? Well, here's why, because we're talking about hot and cold. The second law in thermal dynamics is this. In order for something to stay hot or cold in a closed environment, in a closed system, there has to be something bringing energy to it. Hot water heater, you've got to have the electricity going to it or the water's not going to stay hot. Refrigerator, you've got to have the refrigerant coming to it out of the compressor or the refrigerator is not going to stay cold. So the problem with a closed system is it has to have that taking place to keep it functioning the way that it should, either hot or cold. The church, guys, we need a constant flow of Jesus. Jesus is the fuel that makes the church the church. It's not our programs. It's not our neat ideas. 
It's not PowerPoint and screens. It's not music that we might do, no matter whether it's contemporary, traditional, or what. What it makes a church a church and keeps the church vital and where it should be is to have a constant flow of Jesus in the church. Jesus has to be the most important thing. Guys, without Jesus, we might as well shut the doors, go home, forget it. There's no need for someone to greet you in the parking lot if it's not for Jesus. There's no need for anyone to get up here and sing if it were not for Jesus. There's no reason for me to get up here and try and preach out of the Bible if it were not for Jesus and what He's done for us. For the church to be at the spiritual level God wants the church to be, there has to be a constant flow of Jesus into the church. He has to be most important. Without that, the closed system becomes lukewarm. Instead of being hot and invigorating or cold and invigorating to a society around us, we just become lukewarm. Also, a church can never be closed like this. Talk about a closed system. Not only do we need the constant flow of Jesus, guess what else we need? We need the constant flow of new believers. Because we need to be reaching people for Christ and God wants to bring new people into a church. Churches that don't want new people, there's a problem because Jesus wants new people in the church. And Jesus wants those new people using their gifts and their abilities to serve Him. And a church that doesn't have a constant influx of new people and those people finding their place in the kingdom of God and finding out how they can serve Him, that church will become lukewarm. And it will become like a closed system without any benefit from believers that Jesus is wanting to send. Jesus said this in John 15, Without me, you can do nothing. Without Jesus, we can't do anything. Without Jesus, we can't be hot for Him. We're just a lukewarm organization if it's not for Jesus. Let me give you a definition of nothing. I had one of my uh, theology professors give me this definition when I was... uh, uh, when I was in uh, Bible college. I'm sorry, I got distracted. I looked over and saw somebody's flip-flops. Somebody lose some flip-flops? Right here they are. Somebody lost them. I just happened to see them. <laughs> anyway, get back on track. That just blew my mind. If you don't blow the preacher's mind, lay something up here for him to see in the middle of preaching. Here's the definition of nothing. Here's what my New Testament theology professor said. Nothing is a zero with the edges wiped off. That's nothing. Non-existent. We cannot do anything without Jesus. If we're going to be the church and be at the spiritual level that Jesus wants the church to be, instead of just being a lukewarm body of believers, we have to have Jesus and His will functioning in the life of the church. What many churches do is this. They put it on cruise control. They think they've got God's direction. They put it on cruise control, and they fail to let Jesus steer. The problem with that is this. It's his church. He died for it. He bled for it. You didn't, and I didn't. That's why we need Jesus. And without having him in his proper place, we become nothing but a a lukewarm body of believers. Many have thought this... uh, this reference where Jesus says, I, you're, I wish you were hot or cold, one or the other. A lot of people think it refers to spiritual levels. Like some people think it means Jesus is saying, well, I wish you were hot spiritually or I wish you were just cold spiritually and, and, that, uh, and that instead I, I'd, I'd rather you be cold than even to be lukewarm. You know, lukewarm at least has some heat going on. 
You see, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus would never say, I want you to be cold spiritually. I think Jesus is saying this. I want you to be hot for me, or I want you to be refreshing for me. I want you to be like a hot drink that can be therapeutic to someone, or I want you to be like a cold drink of water that can refresh somebody. That's what Jesus wants the church to be. He doesn't want half-heartedness. He doesn't want us to just half-heartedly serve Him. He wants us to be of a spiritual temperature to where we can bless somebody. We can refresh somebody. He doesn't want us just to be status quo. I think probably Jesus looks at half-hearted believers and it makes him really sick. Another way to view that is probably him saying this. I wish you'd decide one way or the other. I wish you'd decide you're going to be on hot and on fire for me. Or we should figure out that you're cold and you need to turn to me. That's also another interpretation of this passage of Scripture. He looks at a group of believers and he tells them that they are lukewarm. And he's about to spit them out of their mouth. You see, here's the problem with that. According to Romans 12... We've got every region in the world to be on fire for Jesus, to be fervent and not to be lukewarm. Look what the Bible says here. Never be lacking in zeal. Never be lacking in, in your favor for Jesus. Never be lacking in your heat for Jesus, in your passion for Jesus. And then he tells us how to fix that. He says, but keep your spiritual fervor. How do you do that? How do you stay on fire for Jesus? Look what's said next. Serving the Lord. You will never be at the level of spirituality God wants for your life if all you do is show up on church at Sunday and you sit in a pew or you sit in a chair and then you go home and you put your Bible up and you don't think about your Bible again until next Sunday and then you try to remember where you left it when you went home from the church the Sunday before and then you go try and find it so you can come to church and look spiritual. You will never be where God wants you doing that. If you want to be something other than looking warm for Jesus, here's the way you do it. You need to be serving Him. You need to be actively serving Him. But some people think, oh, that scares me. Because if I start serving Jesus, I'm going to run into people it's difficult to deal with, and it's going to cost me something, and there'll be issues and things like that. Well, here's the deal with that. If you're as busy serving Jesus as you ought to be, you don't have time to worry the rest of that. You don't have time to worry with because you're staying on fire for Him. You're serving Him. You're not worrying about what other people think, what other people say, what other people do. Instead, you're just serving Him. He goes on and he says, be joyful in hope. You want to keep your spiritual temperature up for Jesus? You ought to be joyful in the hope that you have in Christ. He said there, be patient in affliction. In other words, trust in Him. Lean upon Him when you're going through problems and issues, and that will help your spirituality. Be faithful in prayer. Spend time talking to Him in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Minister to people. Practice hospitality. If we do those things right there, it will help us to never be lacking in spiritual zeal. There's no reason for a believer to be a half-hearted believer if we would practice the things that Jesus just talked about there. Jesus is talking about four concerns for these Christians in Laodicea. He said, number one, you've lost your vigor or your energy or your passion. Number two, he tells them this, you have lost your values. You've got mixed up values. Jesus said that this is their opinion of themselves. You say, I'm rich. 
I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And then Jesus said, I counsel you to buy, buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. You see, here's the estimation they have of themselves. We're okay. We, we've got all we need. We don't need a thing. We've acquired wealth. That's a pretty good picture of the church in America today, guys. We're wealthy. We're self-satisfied. We don't really need anything. The problem with that mentality is a church will get so self-sufficient, they even forget they need Jesus. Oh, we've got enough in our bank account, or we, you know, we've got enough people coming. We've got enough going in our programs. It doesn't matter if Jesus isn't the focus. And they've got their attitude here as though, look, we are fine. Look at all that we have, all the materialistic wealth that we have. Maybe the church had bought into the banking mentality of Laodicea, the marketing mentality there. Maybe they thought, well, if we just market ourselves well enough. After all, we've got a lot of finances. We live in a wealthy city. See, I'm afraid some churches fall into that trap. Have you ever noticed that a lot of churches, when they want to promote something about the church in their bulletins or their materials and things like that, they have pictures of the church, they have pictures of their pretty buildings. Have you ever noticed that? Maybe that's messed up values for the church. Because we can say, look at our pretty building. See, I don't think that impresses Jesus. I want you to understand something clearly. A building is not the church. You are the church. You have received Christ as your Savior. That's the church. And if we want to be proud about something and have pictures of something that we try to promote, it ought to be changed lives, not just nice buildings that we can have. We need to be advertising that Jesus has changed lives in this place. A lot of people say, I've had people say me, you know, tell me before, well, you know, church doesn't look much like a church. You're talking about the building or the people? If you're talking about the building, I don't care. If you're talking about the people, I'm concerned. See, the church is not this building. The church is believers. I mean, I'll tell people, you know, when I'm talking to them that I'm trying to tell where our church is at, new, someone I've met, I'll tell them. I said, well, we've got a sign out there that says Day 3 Church. I said, there's no steeple or anything. It doesn't look maybe that much like a church, but, you know, that's, that's where we worship at. That's where the church building is. You see, I, we don't make pictures of our building a lot and put out there. If I was wanting to promote Day 3 Church, you know what I'd like to do? Take some of the stories of your changed lives and tell those stories to a lost and dying world to give them hope that their lives can be changed. But this church in Laodicea had their values messed up. Jesus looks at him and said, all right, you think you're okay. You think you've got everything going on well. But he looks at them and he says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Think about the contrast between this church and the church of Smyrna. If you were here that Sunday when we dealt with the church of Smyrna, it was a small church. They were being persecuted. They were being murdered for their faith. And they thought they were poor. But Jesus said, hey, you're rich because Jesus has a different standard of wealth. And here Laodicea thinks they're rich and Jesus looks at them and he says, you're poor. You see, here's the deal with that, guys. We can't take it with us. 
If our values are placed in our material wealth and our material gain as Christians, we have a screwed up mentality. Because here's the truth. The nicest house you can buy will be gone one day. The nicest car you can buy will be gone one day. No matter how much you can amass in your savings account or in your investments, it will be gone one day. This world one day will pass away. The only thing that any of us in this room have that will last for all eternity is our relationship with Jesus. And it is a twisted world and a twisted mindset in the church to think that we've arrived and we don't really need anything. Yes, we do. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to be central in everything that we do. And this church seemed to have forgotten that. Well, what's the solution to that? How do you fix spiritual poverty? Look what Jesus told him here. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Jesus is talking about a different kind of gold. He's talking about buying something that lasts. Buy this relationship. Accept this relationship from me. That's what will last. Don't focus upon worldly wealth. Focus upon the spiritual wealth that you have from being in a relationship with me. Or Jesus could be saying this. Jesus might be looking at this Laodicean church and telling them it would help you to be persecuted and suffer a little bit like the other churches are. Here's why I say that. Look what Peter wrote. In this you rejoice, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come, persecution, trials, problems. He's writing to persecuted believers, Peter is, in Asia Minor. He said these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold. What's more important, gold or your faith? Your faith. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here's the illustration that Peter's using. A goldsmith would take a solid chunk of gold, put it in a crucible, put the fire to it, and continue to heat it until it becomes molten. And then he will skim the impurities off the top. And he will keep heating it and keep skimming the impurities off the top until he can look at that gold in the crucible and see his own reflection. And he knows that it is pure. Just maybe Jesus is looking at the Laodicean church and he's telling them it will wake you up out of your lukewarm status if you went through a little bit of persecution and a little bit of suffering for me. Just maybe Jesus is telling these believers at Laodicea, you need to stand for me, you need to serve me, doesn't matter what anybody else says if it costs you something fine but you need to understand your faith is more valuable than material wealth they had a twisted set of values number three jesus also said he had a concern for this church in laodicea because they had lost their vesture and i know we that's not a common word we use in caldwell county probably he's talking about you've you've lost your spiritual clothing that's what he's saying Jesus looked at this church who thought they were okay. By the way, they lived in a city. Remember this? They lived in a city that made really fine clothing or really fine garment, a really shiny black wool garment. And they might have thought, man, look how we can dress because we've got access to this fine garment, this fine cloth that's manufactured. Jesus looks at them and he says, you might think you're dressed good, but you're really naked. And he's talking about them being spiritually naked. 
And he tells them what they need to do is not just purchase gold from him. They need to purchase white clothes to wear so we can cover the shameful nakedness. That's what he's telling them. See, in in the Bible, nakedness gives a picture of shame. Look look at a couple verses that show that from the Old Testament. So Hanan sees David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. He wasn't trying to be their friend. If someone takes you and shaves off half your beard. We've had weird things like that happen before at youth camp and everything. People started watching some of the pranks that some of the movies were doing that they were coming out. Jack, you know what? You know, things like that. All of a sudden it got popular to sneak around and bring a little razor with you. Somebody's asleep, you shave off one of their eyebrows. So it's not a positive thing here that half of the beard was cut off. It's not a positive thing that they cut their clothes off and sent them away with their butt sticking out. It was a thing of shame. Look here in Isaiah where it says about this also. In the year that the supreme commander sent Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked and captured it, at that time the Lord spoke to Isaiah, the son of Amos, and he said to him, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, Just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign of of portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away, stripped and barefoot, the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, young and old, with their buttocks bared to Egypt's shame. By the way, here's a side message. If you ever think anything I do is a little bit too weird or our church does is a little bit too weird, you need to understand this. God told Isaiah to go naked and barefoot for three years, okay? I'm not going there. I'm just telling you that's what he told Isaiah to do. So factor that in a little bit, the mentality about what is weird for somebody to do at church. That's pretty weird that God told him to do that as an illustration of the shame of Egypt. So it's not a positive thing. And and he's telling this group of believers here in this city of Laodicea, he's saying, you think you're well clothed, but instead you are actually spiritually naked. What's the solution to that? How do we take care of being spiritually naked? Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, talking about Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Philippians says this. Paul is writing, and he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul's saying the material stuff don't matter. He said, I consider them rubbish. Literally means done. You know what that is? 
I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God, is by faith. Here's the deal. If you've got a problem with your spiritual appearance, the way you get that fixed is by trusting in Jesus. Because you cannot become righteous by good works. When you receive Christ as your Savior, God imputes to you. He gives you the very righteousness of God. And when He looks at you, He sees His Son instead of seeing you in your sinfulness. That's how you fix the spiritual problem that you have with your clothing. You see, God's not looking here, guys. God's looking in here. And He wants to see Jesus in our hearts. There's nothing that will benefit God, by you and I showing up in a Hart Schaffner and Mark suit, there's nothing that benefits God by us showing up in blue jeans. What matters is what God sees in our heart. He looks in our heart and He wants to see His righteousness. And the way you fix a spiritual nakedness in your life is to trust in Jesus and have His righteousness. Revelation 19 says this a little bit later. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her Aware, talking about the bride of Christ. Jesus looks at this group of believers and he says, You've got a problem with your vigor, your passion, your energy. You're just lukewarm. He, he looks at this group of believers and he tells them that they have a problem with their values. They're focusing on material wealth and things instead of focusing upon true wealth, which is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He looks at them and he tells them that you've got a problem with your spiritual vesture and the way you fix that is to have a growing relationship with me. And instead, they thought they were okay. And the whole time they've been walking around shaming the name of Christ as though they were spiritually naked. Lastly, Jesus said that they lost their vision. They lost their vision. Remember, they're in a city that made an eye salve that people sought after. And they would go and buy it thinking they could apply this to their eyes and make themselves see better. But Jesus looks at this group of believers in this city where people were dependent upon this eye that was manufactured to help them see. And Jesus says, you're really blind. You can't really see. You're really spiritually blind. So he says, here's what you need to do. You need to buy the gold from me. You need to buy the white garments from me, his righteousness. You need to obtain that from him. And he says this, and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. What is he talking about? What kind of salve can we apply to our eyes that will help us see spiritually? Do you realize diet, what you eat, can affect your vision somewhat? I didn't used to pay a lot of attention about vision things. And then, you know, Bethany went and majored in that in college. And, you know, every time something comes up about someone's eyes or if I'm rubbing my eyes or my eyes look red or she hears someone else, you know, that's maybe had something happen to their eyes, you know, Bethany's all there talking about it because that's what she does now for a living. She works for an eye doctor. And you know, I'd read up and you can actually uh, hurt your vision by your diet. It can affect your physical health to where your vision is affected. If we're going to improve our vision spiritually, guess what our diet needs to be? See, that's what I need to feed upon if I want to see better spiritually. Because this is a light to my feet. It's a lamp to my pathway. 
This will help me to understand and see what God wants me to see and take the right decisions and choices in my life. This group of believers thought they could see because they lived in this city that was famous for a salve. Jesus is saying this. Here's the real salve. Here's what you need to read. Here's what you need to apply to your eyes, to your life, so you can really, truly have vision. Jesus looked at them, and he said that they had lost their vision, and yet they were they thought they could see, and yet they were really blind. You know how blind they were? They were so blind, they didn't realize they were spiritually naked. That's pretty blind. You don't see a naked person walk through the room? Pretty blind. That's what Jesus is talking to them spiritually about. You want to know how blind they were? They were so blind that they didn't even see that Jesus was outside the church knocking on the door, trying to get in. That's how blind they were. And the way to fix that is through God's Word. The blindness is fixed through His Word. Look what Peter says. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten he has been cleansed from his past sins they had a vision problem thought they were okay but jesus said no you are really really blind so jesus addresses four issues he looked at this church in a wealthy city who thought they had pretty much arrived and they were very self-sufficient they were wealthy they thought they were doing really well but jesus said instead you are lukewarm and you are poor and you are blind, and you're wretched, and you're pitiful, and you're naked. That's what Jesus said to them. So how could they change that? If, if that's the reality of the church at Laodicea, if that's who they were, what could happen to transform them? What could change them from the path that they were on? So I think Jesus closes here in these verses by communicating to them three avenues of change for the church of Laodicea. And those same avenues can also help change us. Here's the first avenue of change that Jesus gives. He tells them, first of all, that they ought to be motivated by His corrective love to change. They ought to be motivated by His corrective love. Look what said, Revelation 3, 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. In other words, Jesus is looking at these believers, and even though they were having all those problems that He talked about, guess what Jesus tells them? I still love you. And because I love you, I am rebuking you, And I am disciplining you because I want you to be better. I want you to be where you should be in your relationship with me. It's the picture of a father lovingly correcting children. The Bible talks about that. Look at what the Bible says about that in Proverbs. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. When God corrects us, we ought to be happy for it. Is it fun when God gives us a spanking? No, but it's more fun and better beneficial for us if he just let us keep going the wrong direction. 
It ought to be a positive thing when He corrects us. It ought to motivate us to change when He disciplines us because He's doing it out of love. He's not doing it because He hates us, because He wants to hurt us. He's looking at the church of Laodicea as cold and lukewarm as they were. And Jesus is telling them, the reason I'm rebuking you is because I love you. I want you to change. And that ought to motivate them to change. And when Jesus corrects us, it ought to motivate us to change. Hebrews says this, And you have forgotten that the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. You want to know why that's positive for the Lord to correct us? Here's why. Because the Bible also says if he never corrects you, you're illegitimate. You don't really belong to him. If you can live your life however you want to live your life, I don't care how many times you walk down the church aisle, how many times someone has dunked you in a baptismal pool. If you can constantly live your life the way you want to live your life, apart from God's will, and Him never ever spank you, never ever correct you, I tell you what, you've got a concern whether you really know Him. Because He promises He will discipline those He loves. And that ought to be a positive thing that makes us want to change. That's what He tells this group of believers in Laodicea. Number two, an exhortation to honest repentance. An exhortation to honest repentance. In the second part of verse 19, he says, So be honest and repent. What could help change the church in Laodicea from the problems that they had? Jesus is exhorting them to honestly repent of the direction that they've taken. The word for earnest means to have warmth or feeling for or against something, to actually have some zeal. Remember, he accused them of being lukewarm. He said, look, you need to have a zeal about something. You need to be having this zealous attitude, this desire, this passion to actually repent. Now, repentance has come up a lot in this series, and every time it has, I give you a definition of what repentance means because I want you to clearly understand repentance. Repentance, biblical repentance, is not you remembering every sin that you have ever committed and feeling sorry about every sin you have ever committed and asking God to forgive you. You want to know why that's not biblical repentance? You and I don't have the capacity to do that. I can't remember every sin I've ever committed. Biblical repentance is this. It is us hearing God speak and admitting God is right and we're wrong. That's what repentance is. It is agreeing that God is right about what he has said about us, that we're sinners and that we need him. As he spoke to the church of Laodicea, he's saying you need to repent. You need to admit all the things that I have said about you are true and you need to agree with me and you need to repent and you need to change and go in a different direction. And that same thing that would help them will help the church in this day and time. If we're not where we should be as a church, if we're not where we should be as individuals, we need to honestly and urgently repent and agree with God that our condition is wrong and do what he wants us to do. Obey him and go in his direction. Third thing Jesus tells them that should help fix the situation that they're in is that Jesus gives them an invitation to restored fellowship. Look at verse 20 and 21. Here I am. By that phrase, the way that's phrased in the Greek, Jesus is saying, I've taken my stand. In other words, the the verb tense of it, he's standing there patiently. He's willing to keep knocking. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door 
and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sit down with my father on his throne. You know how most people use that verse of Scripture, how I've heard pastors use it and other people use it? They'll use this passage of Scripture as an invitation to lost people. They'll say to a lost person, Jesus is knocking on your heart, and you need to open up your heart to him. Now, that is true. Jesus does knock on our heart. But that's not the context of what's being said here. I wish it was the context of what's being said here. Because what is being said here is tragic. What is being said here is this. Jesus, the one who died for the church, the one who suffered and bled for the church, he gives us a picture of Jesus knocking on the door of his own church, asking people to let him in, asking people to allow him presence and activity within the church. He's desiring fellowship with them. He's desiring to have communion with them. He's saying, if you will open the door and invite me in, I'll come in and I'll eat with you and we'll have fellowship together. And what happens as a supper environment doesn't just stay in the supper room. He moves from the supper room into the throne room. And guys, I'm convinced that will happen with us because when we answer the door to Jesus wanting into our lives in bigger ways and we sit down and feed and commune with Jesus Christ, here's what's going to happen. We'll be transported from the supper room to the throne room because of what he does in our lives. We will experience him and feel him active in our lives and in our churches in a greater way because we invited him in and we had supper with him. Jesus invites, by the way, even though this applies to a church, it's an invitation to an individual. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. You may be someone that thinks, I can't change a lot about my church. I'd like to, you know, our church needs to do more to reach lost people, whatever the case is. You know where that starts? Transforming a church starts with individuals in the church saying, Jesus, I'm inviting you in. I'm going to sup with you. And as we do that, and he transforms our lives, that will happen across the whole body of the church. If all the individuals in the church will hear Jesus knocking, saying, I want more control, I want more fellowship, I want communion with you, you need to invite me in. If we will do that, it will transform our lives individually, and it will transform our whole body of this church. If we will invite him in. Jesus addresses some problems that this church at Laodicea has. And then he gives them three things that ought to help correct it. He says, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. He tells them, you've got some problems. You need to be honest about the problems that you have, and you need to repent. He tells them, yes, you've got some problems, but I'm knocking at the door, and I want you to invite me in. And if you invite me in, I will change things. I will change the church at Laodicea. I will change the church at day three. I will change your individual lives. But you have to hear me knocking and let me in. He won't kick the door in. He's waiting for us to open the door. I had not planned on saying this, but I thought of it right at the end of the first service. 
Maybe part of our invitation ought to be this. And if you're part of our leadership, maybe on our leadership team or something, maybe you need to be the one to do it. I don't know. Maybe I need to leave the stage and go do it. But I am telling you, day three church will never be all the church that we want it to be or that it should be or that God wants it to be without us inviting Jesus in and Him being central and Him having the focus and Him being in control. And just maybe during the invitation, we ought to go to every door in this place and open it up. (laughs) During the invitation, every door we've got in this facility, maybe we ought to go open it up. Maybe somebody ought to go do that instead of listening to the singing and say, Jesus, we invite you in. We want you to have your way and your will in our lives as individuals and as a church. Because Jesus is sick and tired of lukewarm believers. And he said it makes him want to vomit. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray right now you help us to be completely and totally honest before you. You have bought the church and you have bought us as individuals with the shed blood of your Son. God, help us to honestly evaluate right now our own lives in the life of our church. Our opinion might be that we're wealthy and that we don't have need of anything. And we may think we've got it nailed, that we're doing fine. But your opinion might be of us that we're miserable And that we're poor and we're wretched and we're naked, we're blind. So God, speak to our hearts right now. Father, if there's someone here in this place that has never said yes to Jesus, Father, I pray right now that you would convict them, that you would knock on their door of their heart so loudly and so clearly that right now they will step out in just a moment, come to the front, and publicly confess Christ as Savior. Help them to quit depending upon themselves or their own pretended good works. Help them to understand that Jesus paid everything that needs to be paid for our salvation, for our entrance to heaven. And help anyone here that does not know Christ to know Him before they leave this place. But Father, those of us that know Him, speak to our hearts, help us to evaluate where we are. God, if we've got a problem with our passion, make us more passionate. Help us to turn to You and ask You to to set our hearts on fire for You. Lord, if we've got a problem with our values, if if we've been spending more time chasing the American dream than we have chasing a relationship with you, God, change our values this morning and help us to see the only thing that lasts is our relationship with you. Father, we've got a problem with with our vesture, God, with our spiritual dress. Help us right now to understand a relationship with you is about your righteousness clothing us when we say yes to Jesus. God, if we think we can see and we're really blind, God, I pray that you'd help us to commit fresh and anew to reading your word, to spending time in prayer with you, 
so your word can light our path in our choices that we make in life. If we ask these things in the name of Christ, amen. At the end of all these uh, messages, I've asked you what should we do about it. The Bible says, Jesus said to each one of these churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says that seven times. Seven is considered the biblical number of perfection or completion. And in essence, I think Jesus is telling these churches here, you need to understand how important my perfect, complete word, what I say to you, how important that ought to be in your life and in the life of the church. You see, my opinion is imperfect and your opinion is imperfect. The only thing that is perfect is God's word. And we need to hear what he says to the church. His word is what is important to the church. We had someone recommend, you know, a long time ago, not long after we started our church, because they'd been to a church and they'd, they'd heard this, to where they would sing about 45 minutes and the minister preached for about 15 minutes. And, uh, and I'll, number one, I don't know how to do that. Have you figured that out? I don't know how to do that. Number two, if that's what this church is about, I'm leaving. Because this Bible, this Word, is what we need to hear. This is what changes lives and what changes the church. So number seven, perfection. Jesus is saying, this is what you need, church. Today, we're celebrating our eighth anniversary as a church. The biblical number eight in the Bible, they consider eight the number of new beginnings. Just maybe today, on our eighth anniversary, just maybe God is saying, we need a new beginning. We need more passion. We need more vision. We need to be sure we're spiritually dressed like we ought to be. The righteousness of Christ. Just maybe God is calling us today as a church to hear Him and have a new beginning with Him. He loves us even when we mess up. He corrects us because He loves us. He wants you and this church to be the best it can be for Him. Will you listen today to what the Spirit says to the churches? And if God is speaking to you about coming as a believer and kneeling and saying, God, I need a new beginning in my life. God, I, God I, I, I want you to be central in my life. God, I don't want you to be outside knocking on the door. I want you to be in here in control. Or if you need to come and feel like you need to pray that for our church, that we never, ever have Jesus knocking on the outside trying to get in. Or if you need to come receive Him as Savior, will you please just listen to the Holy Spirit and come as God speaks to your heart? Please stand as a band sings. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dathan Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at And for more information, find us on the web at day3church.com.